Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. I have a a confession to make. Church is a good place for that. I have a, uh, a guilty pleasure I'm not proud of. Um, I think I inherited it from my dad, you know, sins of the father and all that. It's a, it's a certain genre of movie um, that I'll call comeuppance, revenge, maybe best exemplified by the Equalizer movies. Uh, bullies getting comeuppance. Oh, uh, John Wick, I mean, they killed his dog. And stole his car. Derek gets it, right? Um, some of you, I think, are waiting patiently for me to give the message called Revenge of the Exiles. You know, a slave uprising. And, and I, I am dying to preach that message. Some of y'all are waiting for the marching orders message, you know, where we we make a Christian convoy and occupy the streets of Ottawa until this nation repents. And uh, I got to tell you, it's not what I see in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not what I see in the life of Jesus. It's not what I see in the life of Daniel. Daniel would die in captivity, 90 years old. Spoiler alert. And, and maybe that's not the Hollywood ending that we would write. You know, Hollywood would have Daniel you know, sneak into Nebuchadnezzar's room, hanging from the ceiling, Mission Impossible style. And, uh, and before he slit his throat, he'd have a good Schwarzenegger line, you know, looks like you've been exiled permanently. Or I, we can workshop it, but I, but instead of a story of comeuppance, the story that I would write, what we see in Daniel is a story of humility. It's a, it's, a, it's a counterintuitive story. Our instincts are about getting even, our personal rights, winning. But if we're going to be a faithful remnant, uh, biblical exiles in a modern Babylon, uh, it's going to mean modeling a new kind of living, an upside-down countercultural kind of living. And so we're in chapter four. It's been 32 years since chapter one. Uh, David uh, might be my age or, or even a bit older. And you may have thought of all these events happening in his you know, teen years. We haven't even got to a lion's den yet. And we have this evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, who actually praises Daniel's God in chapter two because Daniel was able to supernaturally interpret his dream. And then last week in chapter three, we had Nebuchadnezzar relearn the lesson again as he saw the supernatural deliverance of these three young men in a fire. And he again, he praised the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ordered that no one could disparage their God, our God. But it's a lesson 
it seems he has to keep learning and relearning. And we might be tempted to think he's a bit of a flake until you maybe think back on the past 32 years of your spiritual trajectory. And you might agree it's been a little flip-floppy sometimes. And uh, chapter four is interesting because it's Daniel's first person biography, autobiography, but he actually hands over the pen and the whole chapter to Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's weird, right? Here, crazy king, you write in my diary entry for this part of the story. But you'll see in a moment why, why Nebuchadnezzar would be excited to do that. And, and the subtext here, uh, if you've read the whole book of Daniel, I, I, I think you would come to the conclusion that there is actually a relationship that has formed over these 32 years. You may not like it. You may not like that it's not more adversarial. But Daniel seems to actually have some sort of affection for his boss. So so Daniel hands over the first-person narrative to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, if you want to call it that, it it begins like so many testimonies I've I've heard. Uh, Verse 4 and 5, he says, "I'm, I'm fat and happy, I'm contented, I'm successful, I'm in the palace, not a care in the world. And then something happened that got my attention and rocked my world. God gives him a dream. Now, we all have dreams, nightly. But this king gets two dreams in 30 years that just leave him completely undone. He's shaken to the core. And he's had these encounters with God, but he's still not getting it yet. Long story short, uh, once again, only Daniel seems to be the one who has the God-given discernment to interpret this dream. And it actually troubles Daniel. And I I really believe it's less because he's, you know, giving King bad news, but because um, there's actually a relationship that has grown between them. You might say, yeah, there's a word for that. It's Stockholm syndrome. You know, like uh, when hostages start feeling empathy for their captors. I'm going to propose that there's something going on here about a man who actually cares about the soul of this person he's worked for for 32 years. And instead of vindictiveness, Daniel is showing concern. And I'd love to tell uh, the king this dream and just rub it in. But that's not how Daniel seems to be operating here. He tells him the interpretation. And he says that, the king's wickedness and pride is going to bring him low, low. His hubris is going to bring him humiliation in the form of losing his mind. Uh, For seven years, he's going to act like an insane person, an animal, uh, a wolf man of sorts who's howling at the moon and, and eating grass and Daniel begs him to repent and turn his life around. And maybe it actually scared Nebuchadnezzar straight for for a bit to brief compliance. Maybe some of you have been scared straight into obedience for a a season. You had a health scare. Uh, You had a close call. You, You went to see heaven's gates and hell's flames and had an altar call experience. But like Nebuchadnezzar, you kind of drifted. 
Because 12 months later, and this is by Nebuchadnezzar's own account, he says he's walking on the roof of the palace. I'll bet he can see from where he's standing two, two of the ancient seven wonders of the world. The city walls of Babylon. Anyone know the other one? The hanging gardens of Babylon. And that same instinct that caused him to build a statue to himself surfaces again, and he's looking around. He says, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, he's asking for trouble, and boy, did he get it. I can't overstate enough how... um, how often it is said in scripture again and again, God hates pride. He hates it. The wisest human in Proverbs write, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God hates it. And and here's where I'll give you a a sneak peek into how the, the sausage is made. I had a whole other sermon prepared on the dangers of pride. And I think it's kind of what this chapter is about. And it would certainly be an applicable message for us in 2023, a timely message. It's, it's a sin that is evergreen, you could say. It may be actually worse uh, than ever in the West, at least, in this generation. We have become increasingly independent, increasingly rely on our own accomplishments, our own human wisdom, our own provision. Uh, our work ethic, and even our moral superiority. And it's a message that needs to be preached today, but not today. Uh, I feel even though this chapter is written literally in the voice of, of the prideful king, when I look closer, it is the response of the faithful exile, Daniel, that I, that I want to lean into and learn from. And so based on what I believe was the Lord's prompting, I just I changed directions and uh, some of y'all are going to wish I talked about pride uh, because uh, I'm going to get up in your grill a little bit in a second. But uh, God has given this king a year warning after having this dream. Um, but the warning is over. And while the words, he says, are still on his lips about how awesome he is, God audibly speaks to the king and he says, you're done, king. Uh, You'll be driven away from the people. No one is going to be there to puff you up and tell you how great you are. You're going to live like an animal. People will pity you until you recognize that the one true God is sovereign, even sovereign over you. And just like that, loss of his faculties, loss of his mind, the contempt, I imagine, and laughter of, of the people. He's sleeping out in a doghouse for all I know. Uh, it was God's judgment on him. And, and this thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, this, this consequence, is actually um, an extremely rare recognized psychiatric condition. You can find it in the DSM, which is the, it's the diagnostic Bible for psychiatrists. And it's called uh, bo, boanthropy. Boanthropy. It comes from the word bovine. People who think or act that they're a cow or an ox. Another real diagnosis is uh, lycanthropy. The patient believes they're a wolf or some other 
animal. And it may sound kind of funny, but I, I, those of you who know somebody or have lived with schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, you know, like it's, it's a nightmare. And again, it's the life, though, of this exile, this God follower, Daniel, that I want to turn our attention to. So if pride is the trait demonstrated by the evil Nebuchadnezzar, and I might add the whole culture of Babylon, what is the diametrically opposed trait that ought to be demonstrated by the faithful remnant, by the exile? What is it? Pride or humility? Humility, it's, it's partly how Daniel has found favor in the eyes of his captors for all these years. Now, in order to live as Christ followers, exiles in Babylon, we're going to need a strong dose of both humility and courage, okay? Courage without humility just leads to martyrdom. But humility without courage leads to spinelessness. But the two together, oh boy, oh boy, that can shake the very foundations of hell, or, or in this case, Babylon. Unfortunately, the path of humility is, a, is seldom trod these days. Um, it's not that it's forgotten. It's that in some cases, it's actually disdained. Like, I wonder how many dads, for instance, say they want their son to grow up to be humble. Um, when we say someone has come from humble origins, do we mean that as a compliment? We tend to even equate it with like low self-esteem. But remember, remember how Daniel described himself and his friends in chapter one. He said, we were young men without physical defect. Go on. Uh, it sounds rather confident to me. Those aren't words of someone who has low self-esteem. So humility is not self-abasement. Humility is not denying accomplishments. After all, the reason we know all this great stuff about Daniel is because he's the one who wrote the book about it, inspired by God's spirit, of course. And at its core, you could say biblical humility is really serving others, putting their needs above your own. We don't become a doormat, but we do become a servant. And, and Jesus washing the feet of his students, including the one he knew would betray him, sort of set the model, the parameters of how we treat everyone, friend or foe. And, and while I understand the inclination, believe me, I understand it, to, to have a certain philosophy of being a jerk for Jesus, you know, really sticking it to our culture. You think you're honoring God by standing up for truth and justice, not kissing up to the culture. Problem is, uh, you're seeing respect as a one-way street. You're demanding it from others, but, but giving it out sparingly. Uh, biblical humility offers respect to everyone. We see people as imago Dei, uh, image bearers of God. Daniel seems to genuinely desire the best for his captors. And again, it's this firm belief that God is in control of who's in control. Daniel wasn't, I don't believe, respectful of Nebuchadnezzar because he deserved it. He was respectful because God commanded it. 
It's so rare today. First Peter says to submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Romans 13.1 says, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in position of authority have been placed there by God. The clarity of these commands and more like them, I mean, they're just, there's no way around it. So I, I'm befuddled by some of my instincts, some Christian bloggers, influencers who seem to engage in culture wars, uh, engage in wars with our authorities with such ridicule and contempt and bitterness, maybe even hatred, and believe that they're doing it in God's name. You know, we keep building up walls instead of tearing them down. I'll say this, you know, regardless of what you think of him as a person or his policies, if you have a F. Trudeau sticker on your car or on your shirt, you're, you're doing Christianity wrong. Yeah, if we don't treat godless leaders with respect, we will never have influence over their decisions. In fact, could, could we even live with the fact that sometimes the path of humility doesn't pay off immediately or maybe in our lifetime? Daniel did the right thing despite being kidnapped, probably castrated, forced to study the occult, and then thrust into service with an enemy king. And we don't do it because it's easy or strategic or for short-term gain. We do it because it's the right thing. It's the righteous thing. Daniel had the humility and respect and wisdom to understand that godless people live godless lives. He, he never forced his righteousness uh, his lifestyle on others. Even as he rose to positions of power, he didn't try to impose his walk with God on those who didn't know God. You know, rightly understood, tolerance is a trait we should all excel in. And, and if, if tolerance means granting people the right to be wrong, we of all people ought to be known for our tolerance. Unfortunately, that's not what tolerance means today. That the word has been redefined. It, it, it no longer means granting others the right to be wrong. It now means that nobody is wrong. <laughs> Those who dare to claim that some behaviors are actually morally wrong are, are written off as intolerant bigots. And ironically, they become the one group that nobody is tolerant of. But sometimes I wonder if we have no one to blame but ourselves. Uh, we're getting what we gave for so many years. Back when Christianity was, you could say, the dominant culture, uh, how often did we shut down opposing views? Uh, we raise a fuss about a, a college commencement speaker who advocated a godless agenda. We'd, we would pressure sponsors to stop advertising on TV shows that we didn't like. We'd boycott non-Christian companies for making non-Christian decisions. And now, we're on the receiving end. It's a mistake I don't think Daniel ever made, whether he was at the bottom of the food chain or near the top. 
He never tried to force his righteousness on others. He let pagans live like pagans while he lived a godly life in full view of them. Which is why um, when the time came for him to step forward and speak up, he earned the right to be heard. That, that's the kind of humility that Daniel had. He served his wicked masters with, with loyalty and integrity and excellence. He kept getting promoted. And with every promotion, his influence grew in Babylon until he's the king's top advisor. I wonder if Christians today would accuse Daniel of, of compromising, of being a squish, of, of aiding and abetting the enemy. You know, today we are far more prone to isolate than to infiltrate. Uh, could it be part of the reason of our cultural influence at this time is so low? What if instead of attacking our godless institutions and leaders of our day, that we began to engage them, maybe even humbly serve them? the way Daniel did. It's the only way we'll ever earn the right to be heard. Without contact, there, there can be no impact. Uh, friendly relationships with godless people are not an endorsement of their sin or their values. It's a problem that Paul had to address in Corinth. You remember, he says not to associate with the sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindler. And then he clarifies this. Is, by the way, you know what I'm talking about other so-called Christian hypocrites, right? If I said to stop hanging around with all immoral people, you'd literally have to beat me up, Scotty, because there's no one to hang around with anymore. He even says, what, what business is it of mine to judge people outside the church. You know, he of all people, though, wanted to love everyone, persuade them, influence them. And it strikes me strange that, you know, if a local, or if, a, if, a, if a missionary, an international missionary, befriends the local witch doctor, they're praised for making, you know, relational roads in, in the jungle. That missionary is a hero. We put his picture up on our fridge as a reminder to pray. What if I, Jonathan, befriended the local Muslim Iman, or a politician from the wrong party, or a prominent leader in, in the gay rights or pro-choice movement? Would you all run me out of Dodge? Would, would you take my picture off your fridge? Um, Folks, if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake that Jonah did. He, he didn't just hate the sin of the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. And his biggest fear was that they would actually repent before God brought down the hammer, um, before he spared their destruction. He wanted comeuppance. He would have loved the equalizer. Um, if your passion for God is at odds for your compassion for people, something is off kilter. If, if we would rather see judgment than salvation, we might be doing God wrong. Uh, we've replaced the paradigm of persuasion with the paradigm of warfare, antagonism. Non-Christians don't want to live like Christians. 
especially when they feel pressured to do so. They fight back. And when people are fighting, there's one thing I know they're not doing, listening. I can't find evidence that Daniel and his friends ever treated their captors like enemies. They, they followed the advice of Jesus who, who would give this advice 600 years in the future. They loved their enemies. They, they did good to them. They prayed for those who were persecuting them. We're supposed to do the same. Our great assignment is to go into all the world and recruit Jesus followers, teaching them to obey everything that he taught us. Jesus never told us to create a, a, a Christian nation or to impose our standards on non-believers or to have a Christian government. He told us to win over the lost, to, to change hearts, not fight culture wars. And now Jesus and the New Testament writers do speak of warfare, but it's not war against people, okay? It's against the principalities and the authorities of, of the unseen world, evil spirits. It's a spiritual battle. And sometimes because of our rhetoric, we've come to believe non-Christians are the enemy. Non-Christians are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Victims need to be rescued, not wiped out. The Apostle Paul, he spelled it out the response we're supposed to have toward those whose lives are on a trajectory toward hell. Here's what he says. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So are, are you longing to see God pour out his judgment on people or to see him pour out his grace and mercy on them, granting them repentance and knowledge of his truth? Do you want to see them lose or do you want to see them persuaded? Because I, I thought we were in the persuasion business. You know, notice all the attitude and uh, specific actions we're called to take in this verse. We're not to argue or quarrel, and, uh, and we must be kind to everyone. And yes, everyone means everyone. I checked the Greek. I was hoping for it was a rare word that meant almost everyone, except, you know, Canadians fans or uh, no such luck. Everyone. And so we've also got to be prepared to teach and explain the truth, but it, it, it's got to be done gently. Without resentment, here's, here's the way the Apostle Peter put it. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The more Babylon-like our culture becomes, I'm warning you, the more natural it will be for our resentment to build. And I don't know about y'all, but my natural human response is a lot closer to bitterness and harsh critique, owning someone, as the kids say, you know, it's closer to comeuppance, which um, no one would characterize as a kind and gentle rebuke. Many Christians excuse their words by sort of pointing to uh, Jesus's harsh rebuke of, of the Pharisees and other religious leaders of the day, but 
they kind of missed the point. Jesus didn't ever rail on the sinners of the day. He pursued them. It was religious hypocrites who were attempting to keep the sinners out that he blasted. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar was as evil as they come. He served a demonic God. He trashed Jerusalem's temple, mocked God. He was unreasonable, hothead, vain, murderous, cruel. Yet every interaction with Daniel was respectful and gracious. He understood that every time we treat people created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, um, when we treat them as our enemies, we actually end up hardening their hearts and we build up a, a wall, ironically, which makes repentance all the more unlikely. We, we can see how Daniel had fostered this real relationship with this king. He, he showed integrity and courage, yes, but also humility and respect. And um, still, the ruler had not responded to Daniel's testimony after 32 years. And then another year passes after this second warning. And then the seven years pass where Nebuchadnezzar is living in insanity. And then it says in verse 34 that Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and his sanity was, was restored. Um, Nebuchadnezzar immediately gives praise and worship to God. A total of 40 years passed before the king responded to Daniel's witness, but the king finally did respond. And you may not have known or remembered this part of the story, and I don't think there's any other way to interpret it, but Nebuchadnezzar in that moment became a believer. He became a child of God. And how you feel about that may say something about your heart toward the lost. It may say something about whether you relate more to the prodigal son who was forgiven so much, or if you relate more to the older brother who was resentful of having lived such a good life and his younger brother seemed to be forgiven so easily. You know, about 20 years ago, um, an, artist, an artist's picture was used simply to promote a Christian conference. And it was a picture of Jesus washing feet. But instead of washing his disciples or even Judas' feet, the artist replaced them with what was then current world figures, including Osama bin Laden. And the posters were put up around Seattle in the mall. But eventually there were so many complaints, they were taken down. Who were the complaints from? Christians. So offended that it would be insinuated that Jesus would wash bin Laden's feet. Even some complaints that he'd wash President Bush's, who'd fallen out of favor at that time. And I suspect if you asked them, asked us sort of generally, did Jesus die for the sins of the whole world? Yes, yes. And by extension, would Jesus be willing to wash the feet of anyone? Yes, of course. We can theologically agree on that. It was when they started putting in a specific face, a specific name that Christians got all up in arms. It's like, yeah, grace is good, but let's not go crazy about it. 
And so I wonder for you this morning, um, who would you see pictured in that that would make you recoil and go like, well, I don't know if God's grace extends that far. Trudeau, I'm with you. I shouldn't say that, but Sam Harris, Biden, Trump, Putin, Elon Musk, Bill Cosby, Jake Paul, Kim Jong-un, the drag queen. And I guess this is where we kind of have to circle back to the topic of pride because the particular temptation of many Christians is to explain our salvation, our favor with God is because of our goodness. The Bible says that even our best works are like filthy rags to God. And so spiritually, Nebuchadnezzar was a wretched, pagan tyrant. There was nothing in Nebuchadnezzar that made God deal graciously with him. Folks, this is what we call the gospel, that God makes a pagan king a member of heaven's family by grace alone. And the same is true for us. We become members of God's family simply because of his mercy, not because of anything that we have done. If, if we have any standing before God, it is because of grace. That, that may not be a truth we want to hear on our good days when we're sort of feeling good about our achievements, but it's a truth we desperately long to hear on our bad days when we're so sure of our spiritual failures. Titus says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things he had done, we had done, but just because of his mercy. God's love is not conditioned on our goodness. He does not call us his own because we have been better than others. God loves us simply because he loves to do so. That doesn't mean we sin without consequence. It does mean that God will do whatever is necessary to bring those he loves into fellowship with himself. He may use discipline like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Or God may use just inexplicable mercy. But, but whether God's ways are hard or gentle, his motive is always love. Neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Pastor Jonathan deserve God's grace, but God granted what we couldn't gain. And a couple weeks ago, I mean, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. A kid talked to me who doesn't think God will take him back. He's so filled with shame. He thinks God is too angry with him. And I'm like, no, when you are in your deepest, darkest pit of sin, that's when he will show his love most clearly. God wanted to show his love to Nebuchadnezzar when he was at his lowest state. God claimed Nebuchadnezzar not when he was a great king, but when he was a, a raging animal. Such a great reminder that grace is not applied to those who have earned it. When, when the king stood high boasting about his accomplishments, he knew nothing of God's salvation. Only when he was so humbled um, that his eyes finally looked up to heaven and looked for help to a God who made him whole. The strongest testimonies actually come from the most grateful people. Have you noticed that? 
the most grateful people are the ones who are humbled by the realization that they could never gain God's favor, and yet he grants it. What's so amazing about grace? It is amazing. I don't know what is harder as a pastor to try to convince believers that they're forgiven or to convince unbelievers that they need to be forgiven. If God reached Nebuchadnezzar, oh, he can reach anyone. In the throes of our shame, we wonder if God could truly love us and we may doubt that he actually loves us. But if we are ever to be truly whole, we gotta recognize there is no sin we've ever committed or can commit that the grace of God cannot cover. To doubt that is to doubt the character of God. Nebuchadnezzar for four decades was hardened to God's truth and he, and he had heard of Daniel's God for years, but he rejected the message. I wonder if you know a person like that. Is there someone in your life who has heard the gospel of Jesus time after time, but's never responded? They're calloused against God. And if you were to really scratch deeply into your most honest thoughts, you might even confess that you're not sure this person can be changed. Um, they're just too far gone. You, you may have given up hope of ever seeing change. Maybe you've even stopped praying for this person. That's a hard thing to admit. Maybe you've, to some extent, stopped caring. Wh whosever's face comes to mind, I just encourage you to remember, it does not matter how hard this person's heart is. God can change hard hearts. If God could change Nebuchadnezzar's heart, God can change the hardest hearts. The invitation is open. I'd like to even offer that invitation to you. Maybe even pray the words of this song that we're gonna sing together. God, for the one who's carried a burden for far too long on their own, remind them they weren't created to carry it alone. May they hear your invitation now to let it all go, lay it down, remind them that they need you. You saw their condition, you had a plan from the very start that your son Jesus would be their redemption. It's the price for their heart. And even though we don't have a context for that kind of love, we don't understand it, we can't comprehend it, all we need to know is that if we run to the Father and we fall into his grace and we stop our hiding, we stop our waiting, we recognize that Jesus is like a surgeon for our heart, a friend for our soul. And so we run to the Father who is running towards us.